I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. It's the canvas, not the count. But it's also the count. It's high noon for Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator dot substack dot com and the merch site is cancelcotour dot com or go direct to shop dot spreadshirt dot com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 231st day of Barack Obama's third term as served by The half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth, that's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You always have an answer for everything as soon as you start engaging the conversation that most of us started nine months ago. Like yesterday, for instance, some FOIA documents come out about Anthony Fauci and they prove a whole bunch of things we've known the entire time. And the commies will come out and tell you how, oh, that's not real or, oh, here's the excuse. And we're all supposed to take that seriously as if these conversations haven't been playing out for a long time. And of course they have. We've had these conversations here. Or, well, I've had the conversation and you've listened to the conversation as I converse with myself. So the commies will always be behind because they take their information exclusively from the mainstream media and the quote unquote authoritative sources, which basically relay information we relayed last year. And we're supposed to treat that all as the new knowledge. And we expect that from the sorts of people who think that the election was still totally legitimate at this point. They think that Katie Hobbs, for instance, is an authoritative source because she is an election official. And they're looking at her as a subject matter expert rather than what she really is, which is a future defendant. Okay. Katie Hobbs has committed crimes. Listening to her excuse her actions on MSNBC isn't you getting out in front of the story, okay? It's you repeating her defenses as she tries them out in the court of public opinion, hoping something might work and people will not figure out that she has indeed committed crimes and then hold her accountable. The problem I want to talk about, though, is when people who are ostensibly on our side act as if they are in the same information environment. And I am going to just caveat that and say it's possible they may well be in that 
information environment. So last night I was watching this little clip of the Tucker Carlson show. And last night, I guess it was hosted by um, Brian Kilmeade. And his guest was uh, Congressman, Wisconsin Congressman Mike Gallagher to talk about the new Fauci emails that were released because of a Freedom of Information Act request by The Intercept. And so Mike Gallagher is one of the uh, Romneys who freaked out on January 6th. Oh, my God, it has to stop now. We have to stop questioning the results of the election and just accept that Joe Biden won because everything is so very violent. This very violent insurrection is too much. That means that Joe Biden definitely won because I'm scared of what's happening outside. Those two things are not connected. Okay, even if I was to accept the mainstream media's story about what January 6th was, which I don't at all. It was not a violent insurrection caused by violent Trump supporters telling the big lie. That is not what that day was. That day was a day of peaceful protest where patriotic Americans went to make their voices heard because they could see the obvious and overwhelming evidence of election fraud, the obvious and overwhelming evidence of a stolen election. And we'll talk about that at greater length. A little later, the violence that day was caused by groups associated with the FBI, whether they're Antifa or the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys. These are all groups with FBI informants and FBI agents manipulating their operations and their goals. Okay, and that's me putting it mildly. What we saw on January 6th is a replay of what we saw in Michigan last year with the quote unquote plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, which we can see was instigated primarily by the FBI and their agents. And January 6th was a replay of that. Uh, Revolver.news has done extensive, excellent reporting on this. You can look to Darren Beatty for more of the information on that if you need the background. If you already know the background, then you'll understand that what I'm saying is correct and uh, justifiable. So Mike Gallagher complained about what was happening outside and said that it was so very scary and that it's the stuff of banana republics and we can't see the American experiment in democracy go this route. That just can't happen. And because of the very violent insurrection that occurred for a couple hours and the only people that got killed were Trump supporters, at least, you know, as a result of the violence of that day, other people got killed in a more Hillary-esque style, shall we say, in the following weeks. And then even just about a month ago, out of nowhere, Two Capitol Police officers, quote unquote, committed suicide on the same day. But the violence was largely and almost exclusively not a product of patriotic Americans and Trump supporters going to protest a fraudulent stolen election. All right. So Mike Gallagher's assessment of the event, even in real time, was wrong and inaccurate. 
But the point I'm really focused on making is that the violence, even if we accepted the mainstream media's version and the Nancy Pelosi version of what happened on January 6th, none of that actually has any bearing on the truth or falsity of the claims about election fraud. The claims about election fraud are true. And whether there was an actual violent insurrection that day or not, the claims are unaffected by what's happening outside. The claims are either true or false, and the violence on January 6th has no bearing on the truth value of those claims. Okay? They don't become false because things are going wrong outside. And that is what we are supposed to believe if we are to listen to people like Mike Gallagher or another Romney, Kelly Leffler, who just dropped her opposition to the certification of the fraudulent election. She was supposed to object. And then after the very violent insurrection, after they resumed their session, she stood up and said, oh, I can't object now. It's just too dangerous. We basically have people who could see the obvious and overwhelming evidence of election fraud, and they stood up to object and then were ostensibly deterred by the violence that had occurred. So they basically said, yes, I know the country is under threat and that we may have had a stolen election, but I'm going to deprioritize this monumental issue because the media says there was a very violent insurrection. Now, that is not what someone with integrity does. Okay, so that is the context of who Mike Gallagher actually is. Mike Gallagher is a dyed in the wool Romney. He is a product of the establishment system and he exists to uphold the establishment system, including the rigging of elections. That's who Mike Gallagher is. All right. So that said, Mike Gallagher appears on the Tucker Carlson show guest hosted by Brian Kilmeade last night to be the public face of the anti Fauci movement. All right. He's going to be the very serious Republican face of the anti Fauci movement. And he gets to be the guy that's going to go out and be the hero taking down Anthony Fauci. It's just this whole David versus Goliath. And Mike Gallagher is going to be the one on the side of the right and the just and the true who's finally going to take out his little slingshot and nail Anthony Fauci. That's what we're being shown by the media. The central narrative has moved to the point where on one side, Fauci is disposable and they're going to try to prop up a bunch of rhinos and Romneys to make that case to the American public. And Mike Gallagher gets his shot. So I'm watching Gallagher give his milk toast review of how bad Anthony Fauci is and all this stuff we've just learned from these FOIA documents. And I'm thinking, wow, man, you know, he's saying a whole bunch of things that 
most of us were saying over a year ago, like literally over a year ago, before last September, well before last September, we knew what Anthony Fauci's role in all of this was. We know that the virus did not come from some bat soup at the market. And it doesn't matter how many times Anthony Fauci says it. All right. Now we have more of a historical record of Fauci's emails. But we didn't need that to reach the right conclusions, as all of us did well over a year ago. And we have this guy, Mike Gallagher, right? Wisconsin Romney. And he's standing up, being the voice of the people, anti-Fauci, on television. Wow. Give him a round of applause. What a strong American patriot he must be to finally come out against this giant Anthony Fauci. Except he's doing it a year late, okay? He does not deserve credit for this stuff. The Fauci emails came out, so it is assumed in the central narrative and in the very polite public conversation that this is the moment where it's now okay to say that Anthony Fauci did X and Y and Z because it's shown in these emails that we all just received. So Mike Gallagher, the man who is supposed to be one of the leaders of his party in Congress, is now out giving the American public the information at the point at which they can already see the information for themselves. Okay. So Mike Gallagher, the leader of one of the leaders of the Republican party in Congress has no better information than a common normie who reads the New York times and the Washington post and the wall street journal. And we are supposed to accept that. And not only are we supposed to accept that we're supposed to honor that. We're supposed to honor that as the cutting edge of political thought right now. Oh, it's so avant-garde coming out against Anthony Fauci about things the rest of us knew well over a year ago. This is all we demand from our leaders, okay? This is like the, the, the Dan Crenshaws and the Tom Cottons of the world. And, you know, Ted Cruz might be a little bit more toward our side than these guys, but it's still pathetic. And, you know, I like Josh Hawley and Josh Hawley came out and objected to election fraud. So he's still on the team as far as I'm concerned, but he's equally far behind on this stuff. And they're going after Fauci for his emails and for the lab stuff. When is one of these very brave Republicans going to come out and just be like, hey, masks don't work. And everybody knows it. And I don't know how we've pretended this for so long. They should be out there every day saying the truth. They should be saying lockdowns didn't work. None of the coronavirus mitigations worked at all. The vaccines don't work. The vaccines are dangerous. Where are they saying those things? Marjorie Taylor Greene gets most of the way there. Matt Gates does an admirable job. We've got a few here and there. I'm not trying to besmirch everyone. I like Paul Gosar. There are some decent people out there, and I'm forgetting some. You know, this isn't 
me rehearsing all of their names. But what we can't be honoring is people like Mike Gallagher, who are clearly not on the side of the people and not on the side of the truth. We cannot be honoring them because they go out there and slam Dr. Fauci. I mean, Rand Paul has been ahead of pretty much everybody else on that issue, and he's still six months or nine months or a year behind what we should expect from a leader. I mean, let's think about what this whole COVID thing is in context, right? From like the 40,000 foot view, you know, we know the virus came out of a lab. That is the best information that we have right now. And we know to near certainty that it did not come out of the wet market. And so we also know that Fauci and others were in support of gain of function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and with Ralph Barrick, whether it was here in Texas or North Carolina or Fort Detrick, or it was in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, we know that they were doing research they were not supposed to be doing. They were covering it up. They have covered it up. We know all of that. Okay. What we don't know for certain is that it was a bioweapon or that it was intentionally released. And you know, there's good reason to suspect that, but I think that that is a more uncertain claim than the claims about the origin of the virus. And in the scenario that it was intentionally released or that it was a bioweapon to be used for this purpose, then what we have is an act of war by China against the United States. And we would expect our leaders, particularly on the Republican side, to be concerned about that possibility and be reacting to that possibility, at least as a contingency. If it turns out to be true, then we need to act this way. And they should have been taking that possibility seriously the entire time. The fact that we have people like Mike Gallagher coming out now and not even embracing that part of the conversation, just using this as a tool to go after Anthony Fauci, that's not good enough. That's not leadership. That's catching up to a narrative way too late and still acting in response the wrong way. I don't know how it's acceptable to anyone that we allowed an act of war by a foreign adversary, potentially, with zero response for 18 months, at least, you know, in terms of the central narrative, the public narrative, and the things we know, right? I'm not saying there's nothing going on behind the scenes, vis-a-vis China or anything else, okay? I'm, I don't want to have that part of the conversation right now. Maybe there's plenty going on. Maybe we have responded in full and we just can't see it, okay? Totally possible, totally possible. But that aside, the country as a whole has not responded to an act of war by a foreign adversary because our leaders, in quotes, like Mike Gallagher, are 12 months, 15 months, 18 months behind the truth. They are only in line with the timing of the central narrative, and occasionally they might push the timeline of the central narrative up in certain small ways, but they're not getting the truth 
in a timely manner and reacting to it in a timely manner. So there's no way that you can call what they're doing leadership. And that includes Rand Paul. And so we have these people coming out onto television to perform their role as the destroyers of Fauci a year plus after that role was actually necessary. A leader would have taken this on a long time ago and finished the job. Anthony Fauci isn't indestructible. Yes, the media protects him. Any of these people could have gone after Anthony Fauci in the media and made their case, but they didn't because they were worried about the media attacking them. And that includes Rand Paul. I'm open to Rand Paul being a good guy. He's not the greatest of the problems when it comes to Congress and the Senate. But he's not the greatest solution either if he's six months or nine months or a year behind constantly on all of it. And where are his results? He's made some commercials. He's done some fundraising off attacking Anthony Fauci because I guess he's realized that there's a market for that. Thank goodness. But in the meantime, Anthony Fauci is still out on television encouraging children to get vaccinated and saying that all these Americans going to the college football games and jumping and shouting and enjoying their lives, they're endangering everybody. That sows division. He doesn't have any basis for saying that. He doesn't have any statistical support, and he hasn't this entire time. The people who are in that stadium doing that are not in a risk group when it comes to COVID. They just aren't. And event after event after event that they have described as threatening and scary. Oh, there's going to be a super spreader event. Oh, there's going to be an outbreak. Hasn't happened. It hasn't happened at all. Again, I talk about this a lot because it is such a glaring example of how insane these people are. But let's look back last year, May 5th, 2020. Atlantic Magazine, Amanda Mull, Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice because they were reopening businesses after two or three weeks of lockdown. That was an experiment in human sacrifice, according to the Atlantic. And here we are. What is that? 16, 17 months later, everything's fine. Everything's fine. There was no experiment in human sacrifice. There's no explosion of deaths in Georgia. It didn't start attacking children and young people and adults in the workforce. No, the at risk group stayed the same from the very beginning, the elderly and infirm. And sadly, the obese. That's who's been affected by coronavirus. It hasn't changed. It's never been kids. It's never been young people. But Fauci's still out on television pretending it is. So he's still doing his job. He is still fulfilling his role in the panic and the propagandizing of the American public. He's still able to do all of that unabated. He's certainly lost some of his base of support. Certainly some of the people out there have woken up to all of this. 
a lot, let's say. Not enough, but a lot. But that's not thanks to people like Mike Gallagher. Mike Gallagher is still so far behind. And, you know, he should have better intel than we have, right? He's a congressman. It is his duty to get the best possible information and to get information from both sides and to speak on what he truly believes, what he thinks is scientific consensus or what he thinks is being termed as scientific consensus that isn't. He should be able to come out and say those things. He should be able to come out and say, well, actually, there are quite a few studies that show ivermectin has amazing results. Where were any of these people in defending the use of hydroxychloroquine while the FDA was banning it? And now we have pharmacies, individual pharmacies, making it so that people can't fill their doctor's prescriptions for ivermectin. That's not the pharmacy's job. This is insanity. But it's still being allowed. Where is Mike Gallagher? Where are the Mike Gallagher's of the world? Oh, yeah, they're talking about stuff we knew a year ago and pretending it's new information as if they're just the average normie on their couch watching Netflix. And the sad truth is, honestly, that a lot of them are because what we have, this group of people who still don't understand anything about coronavirus, they are largely people who stayed home the entire time. Just these communists who got super scared. They're able to work from home. So they almost never leave. They order takeout. They order groceries. They order whatever they need from Amazon and they stay home. I mean, we still have like blue and on check marks on Twitter talking about how, oh, they just came out of the house for the first time in 18 months. What? They stayed in their place for a year, for 15 months, for 18 months. That's madness for a disease that has a lower infection fatality rate than the common flu and does not kill kids. They stayed home in fear and ordered everything because that of course couldn't spread COVID a delivery man going to all sorts of people's homes can't get COVID that way. But you going out to the grocery store, ah, that's COVID. The craziest part is that these people made sure not to put themselves in situations where they would be around people who might tell them something different than the central narrative. All right. That's why you see these mask enforcements and vaccine enforcements at the businesses where these sorts of people go, because they don't want to go in to their yoga class, for instance, and realize that no, no people are also in the room. Somebody might say something that conflicts with their narrative about the coronavirus. And that is what they are ensuring no matter where they go. We are talking about people who have not been exposed to other ideas this entire time, except in the context of their online experience, where all of those people saying the no-no things are instantly called conspiracy theorists, or they are censored. They are spreaders of disinformation. So you might get exposed to the disinformation ideas, right? Like that hydroxychloroquine actually does help or that ivermectin cures the thing pretty much all the time. They don't want to be exposed to those ideas. They don't want to hear somebody like Peter McCulloch say that 85% of these deaths could have been completely avoided simply by giving people ivermectin, a common, cheap, available drug that anyone could have gotten. 
They could have done that, but then they wouldn't get the vaccine. They wouldn't get the emergency use authorization on the vaccine. So the pharma companies got the actual cure banned so that it wouldn't get in the way of the vaccine rollout. And we're just supposed to go along with that and be fine and and say, oh, well, you got to trust the experts, the FDA. They're the experts. So you got to trust them. Doesn't matter if they're doing the wrong thing. Who are we to say that they are wrong? We are not the experts. How many lives is it acceptable to lose because the FDA is restricting the cure from people? Where are the Mike Gallagher's of the world on that? And they're nowhere. And so if this is the speed at which they are getting information and putting that information to use, then they are not doing their job and accessing the best possible information they can find. And the really disturbing part of that is that no one has been allowed into their circle or into their conversations to bring this to their attention. You know, like pleading ignorance is going to be what these people fall back on eventually. And I'm making the argument that that should not be good enough. They are put in a position to lead people. And that position comes with special access to information, if only they ask for it. And so if they're not asking for it, if they're dismissing everyone's counterpoints as conspiracy theory the same way the media does, because they themselves are addicted to the central narrative, well, then we're in trouble. And all of those people should be removed from office because they are leaving America behind and vulnerable in the face of an act of war from an adversarial foreign nation. And again, I don't know 100 percent that it's an act of war, but the fact that it might be means they have to react to that scenario. It is their duty to react to that scenario. And they haven't done their duty. And the thing is, I mean, you have to imagine what it must be like to always be in conversations where everyone who's involved in the conversation to even be allowed in the conversation in the first place has to agree that there is a certain set of topics and issues that everybody is going to lie about, right? So if you're in the party of false decorum, and if you're a person like Mike Gallagher, who is clearly in the party of false decorum, Mike Gallagher does not have an independent thought. You can read it on his face. He has absolutely no idea. The fact that he came out on January 6th and said that all the objections to the counting of electors must be stopped because of violence. Well, that's not an original thought. That's what he's being encouraged to say to support the establishment system and the system of election rigging. That's not an independent thought. That's not a principled idea. That wasn't Mike Gallagher's integrity shining through. That's his corruption shining through. These people have not had a conversation centered on truth in the last 18 months at all. And, it, you know, truthfully, it's probably much longer than that. Their circle of acceptable people is marked by everyone's agreement to lie about certain things, right? And they have to tell the lies. They have to repeat the slogans so that everyone else in the circle knows that they are safe. 
They have to repeat the slogans about race. They have to repeat the slogans about vaccines. They have to repeat the slogans about masks. And if there's one part of the narrative that they choose not to repeat, that they disagree with the other people in the conversation about, they have to keep their mouths shut. And after they have done that, after they've silenced themselves in agreeing with the slogans someone else just said, well, they're going to have to come out and repeat one of the slogans that they don't believe just to show everybody that it's safe. Hey, everybody, don't worry. I don't want to lie about that thing, but I'm happy to lie about this other thing. Okay. You know, you're saying that masks work and that we should wear too. Well, you know, I'm going to keep quiet on that one. I'm not going to tell you that masks don't work because then, you know, I know that I'll be rejected by the group. So I'm just going to stay silent about the whole two masks thing. And you're going to doubt me until I come back around and say that I actually think that the digital vaccine passport is a very cool idea. Oh, yeah. I mean, sure, there are some privacy concerns, <laughs> but. Can you imagine how convenient it's going to be to have everything all on your device? You can pay and you can swipe your way into the stadium. It'll have your ticket and your vaccine passport right together. <laughs> It'll track everywhere you go. And it's the same thing that monitors your social media. And it knows that I don't say anything bad. So, of course, I'm allowed to go to the game. Great. I'll meet you there. Look at how much friction we've just saved ourselves in our lives. Thanks, Clear. It's a condition of belonging to the group and being allowed in these conversations that you agree to lie about a certain set of topics. That's where we are right now. That's what it is to be in the party of false decorum, to be allowed in polite society. You must agree to lie about a certain set of topics. And people like Mike Gallagher have no problem doing that. And that's politicians in general. They are happy to lie about a certain set of topics because that prevents them from actually having to say where they really come down to actually give an honest answer to people. They can waffle. They can paint around the edges. Because they know that most of their constituency has agreed to lie about these topics, too. Hey, Mike Gallagher, what do you think about masks? Well, you know, I think that the uh, there is obviously some variation in what the science says about their effectiveness. But, you know, I think that they really do make some people feel better. And if that's the case, you know, maybe they provide some level of benefit. And so I guess, you know, if people want to keep wearing them, then... I don't see anything wrong with it. Oh, okay. But what do you think about masks? Do they work or not? And Mike Gallagher would have no idea, even though he knows. Because he understands that masks are one of the topics that we've all agreed to lie about. And same thing with voting fraud and election fraud. Just like Dan Crenshaw a couple of weeks ago when Bobby Python confronted him at that event. Dan Crenshaw said, oh, there's no way that Arizona is going to be overturned. And there's no way there's no way that five states will be overturned because Dan Crenshaw knows electoral math. He just answers that none of this is going to happen. Does he have some insight about what's going on in the Arizona audit? No, of course not. If he was pressed, he would probably say 
that it doesn't seem legitimate. He's a little worried about the cyber ninjas. What's the difference between Dan Crenshaw's position and Rachel Maddow's position? In fact, what's the difference between Mike Gallagher's position on the Fauci emails and someone on MSNBC? Maybe they'll continue protecting Fauci a little longer. Maybe they'll ignore the Fauci emails because they understand that to be kept in their circles, Fauci is one of the topics that everyone has agreed to continue lying about. But substantively, their position is virtually no different than Mike Gallagher's. They all just imagine that this information became available yesterday and was never available before. Oh, whoa, this is a whole new world of information. It's like that gif of the little blonde haired kid who's like eight years old. It's from like the 80s or the 90s. It looks like it's from some sitcom or something, but he's just looking around the sky like totally confused. It's one of the best gifts ever. But that's I mean, that's what Mike Gallagher seems like when these new FOIA emails come out. Oh, wow. A whole new world of information. It turns out Fauci's a bad guy. Turns out Fauci hasn't been entirely honest. I better get on Fox News and let them know. Okay, Mike. It is entirely possible and maybe even likely that Mike Gallagher has not had one truthful conversation, one entirely truthful conversation in the last 18 months about COVID. It is entirely possible and in fact probable that every single conversation that he has had about serious issues has been had with the understanding that he and everyone else in the conversation will agree to lie about a certain range of topics. How are we supposed to have a functioning country when our leaders are those people? They will not even tell the truth in private conversations because they are worried about what the rest of the people in the conversation might think about their allegiances. That is where we are. And yet we still pretend these people are leaders and we praise them when they reach the point the rest of us reached 15 months ago. And it's not like we were just glorifying our suspicions. We had all of this stuff backed up. With legitimate information, well-sourced, sourced documents, everything that could support our positions. We had it all 15 months ago. And now Mike Gallagher's just figuring it out because of a FOIA. Give me a break. And hey, if that isn't good enough for you anymore, Kami, then perhaps it's time to migrate back to America. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Wednesday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. I should have welcomed you right away, but it is what it is. We are just sitting here 40 minutes in. I want you to know that this is the place for you, though, commie, because at some point, at some point, you are going to determine that there is no life ahead for you in that communist utopia that you've pretended exists. It doesn't exist. Okay. 
America is the best shot you've got. And freedom and personal liberty and personal responsibility, all the things that our founders tried to imbue the Constitution of the United States with, those are the things that are going to get us closer and closer to that more perfect union. It's not going to make a utopia. That's not going to happen. Okay. But neither is anything else. And certainly communism will not yield a utopia. And you should be able to see that by this point, honestly, because this is the closest anyone has come to communism in quite a long time. And it's not working out so well. So, hey, redeemable commies, I'm glad you're here. Stick around. We'll make you American again. Everything's going to be just fine. Okay. now let's move on and talk about the quote unquote American Taliban. And this, what I'm about to play for you, is Jim Acosta from CNN, or as Mike Lindell calls him, Jim Acosta. What will we tell the Afghan refugees who just fled those schools for girls back in their home country? I guess the girls here will have to fill them in. Okay. Now, there are a few things more ridiculous than Jim Acosta pretending that he has gravitas and that everyone should take him seriously when he is like sitting behind an anchor desk. God, it's hilarious. The man has absolutely no gravitas. He is a clownish figure. He is almost as bad as Brian Stelter, but not quite. But this whole framing, what will we tell these girls is absolutely ridiculous. Okay. Now, he is using the royal we, right? He's including his audience in this framing. Like, what will we collectively, what will we as a country tell these Afghan girls about what's happening right now? Uh, Jim, you are never going to meet any of them, okay? And the very strong likelihood is that neither is anyone in your audience, the only way that would happen is if CNN or an affiliated communist organization actually like collected a few of these girls and decided to take them on a national tour where very stuffy communists could pay money to come see them or donate money to a very special cause. It would be like some little immigrant petting zoo that they would hold. Oh, look at our immigrants. Otherwise, there is no way that anyone like Jim Acosta is going to end up in a situation where his life intersects with one of these Afghan girls. People like Jim Acosta don't find themselves in those sorts of situations. They only imagine themselves in those sorts of situations. And imagining yourself in a situation allows you to be absolutely as moral as anyone could ever be. Hence the self-righteousness. Jim Acosta is imagining a situation where he has to explain America to one of these Afghan girls and somehow convince them that his fantasy land is real and that they are in danger equivalent to the place they just left which I don't know how much Jim Acosta hates America. It's obviously quite a lot. But to think that because we 
are willing to say that the election was obviously stolen, somehow this refugee girl is in the same danger she was in in Afghanistan. That's what Jim Acosta is requiring us to believe to go along down this road of nonsense with him. And also, the what will we tell them framing is so ridiculous because what he's talking about really is what is the media, what is society going to tell them? Which means how are we going to frame this lie so that they will believe it? It's a conversation about a made-up conversation. That's what he's having on the news right now. A conversation about a made-up conversation so that he can extract political power out of the made-up conversation right now. Unfortunately, what we will tell them is that some members of the far right in this country have apparently decided they will resort to intimidation and in some cases even violence to get what they want. What could he even mean by that? The groups that they commonly refer to when they want to say the right is violent, when they want to say that MAGA is violent, are the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, and the Oath Keepers, all of whom are infiltrated or, I mean, maybe even started by the FBI. And he is also in the position of having been one of the people who spent last year defending Black Lives Matter Antifa as they went and committed political violence and domestic terrorism all around the country. They were burning down people's businesses and people like Jim Acosta were saying that they were mostly peaceful. Using violence to get what you want? Yeah, Jim, that's you, buddy. And then you justified and rationalized the violence. No one on our side is doing that ever. And they could sweep into power faster than the experts thought possible. Who are these experts? And what a strange threat. They could sweep into power faster than experts thought possible. Well, if they're sweeping into power, that would require elections, wouldn't it, Jim? Because the elections are still very legitimate. And if they were to sweep into power, it would be through elections, right? So... That would happen in November of 2022. What experts don't think that's possible? It's legitimately common knowledge among political scientists that the midterm is a chance for the other party to take back power. And it often happens. There is nothing unusual about that whatsoever. So what is the threat, Jim? What power are they going to sweep into earlier than experts expect? And why can't Jim Acosta just take responsibility for the opinion he's laying out? Why does it have to be that he's just communicating the expert opinion? Jim Acosta is giving his own point of view extra credit by inventing experts who agree with him. Sound familiar? Sort of like an American Taliban. I mean, is he saying that the Taliban swept into power faster than the experts thought? He must be referring then to the experts 
in Joe Biden's fake administration, the ones who got it all wrong. And he's using it as if they were right. It is starting to look like a combination of theocracy and thugocracy. Wait, what? I thought the word thug was racist. The leaders of this MAGA ban movement. He's really going to try to make MAGA ban a thing. <laughs> hey, Jim, MAGA ban is never going to be a thing. People like Marjorie, Madison and Tucker, they're not counting on an intelligence failure or a lack of planning on your part. They're counting on a lack of courage to stand up for your rights in this country. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, actually, it does. That sentence you just said does ring a bell because it sounds almost exactly like what people on our side have said that you called an incitement of violence. So it does ring a bell. Thank you, Jim, for bringing that up. Ooh, Marjorie and Madison and Tucker. Ooh, they're so scary. The anti-immigration, anti-democratic, anti-women's rights forces have all sought these kinds of changes for years, even decades in this country. Their operation to change America forever is well underway. It's just changing in a way they don't want you to see. I mean, what is he talking about? It's changing forever in a way that they don't want you to see. <laughs> it's like he's trying to convince his audience that there really is a monster under their bed. Can't see it, but trust us, it's there. There really is an American Taliban. And, you know, one of the really funny things about what he's saying and this entire idea of an American Taliban and the entire idea that they've been calling uh, patriotic Americans, domestic terrorists for nine months is that it kind of exposes their conversation about terrorists in other countries. Like they are sowing the seeds of doubt in their own narratives by using the same language about us that they use about the Taliban. We know for a fact that we are not violent and that we do not promote violence, nor are we promoting a theocracy. We are promoting religious freedom, but that's not a theocracy. One side in this country is actually promoting a rigid and fundamentalist ideology. But that's the communists. That's the preachers of critical race theory. That's the preachers of the social justice ideology. It's not us. They require strict ideological adherence. And they extract penalties for people who disagree with them. They make them into heretics and kick them out of society. They censor them. They take away their ability to have jobs. They want to take away the ability to go to grocery stores. They're literally trying to segregate the country right now. Strict ideological adherence. That's what they want. That has every aspect of a theocracy, except it is secular. Meanwhile, on our side, 
there are people with religious beliefs who want to see those religious beliefs reflected in their culture and in their politics, but it certainly doesn't describe everybody. And it's certainly not describing a top down sort of thing where our religion has to be made law. And let's not forget that we are talking about people who pretend that Sharia law doesn't exist, basically, or that there's no push to have it accepted in the United States. But they will call us a theocracy and violent and all of these things. We know we are not that. There is no resemblance whatsoever between the America First movement and the Taliban that we have come to know over these last 20 years, as described in the media. How seriously are we supposed to take their depiction of the Taliban and these other various groups like ISIS-K, which they just made up, when they are as ready to call us terrorists? If anything, they're giving us cause to believe that they are doing the same thing to the Taliban that they are to us. They just have political problems. These people stand in the way of their political goals. And so they'll call them terrorists and say they're trying to destroy the rights of women. What part of that are they not saying about the America First movement? Right. We all hate women, apparently. Because we support Texas's right to pass laws. And we support Texas's right to do what they can to defend the rights of the unborn. And, you know, we can have the conversations about the gray areas. I'm always happy to engage those conversations. But the other side is arguing that babies should be subject to abortion at seven months and eight months and nine months. And that if somehow a baby comes out still alive after an abortion procedure is botched, well, then we need to decide what to do with that baby, which means kill it. These are conversations that are had in the open on that side and supported by our media. And we're supposed to imagine that we want to have a conversation about not aborting a fetus after a heartbeat is present. And that makes us haters of women in the way you've described the Taliban for the last 20 years. I don't think so, man. I don't think anybody's going to get on board with that. That is a ridiculous depiction. And then the other thing is that Jim Acosta presents this conversation in the context of the immigration conversation. Okay. Now the problem with the left's definition of immigration is that it already assumes the conclusion of their argument that open borders is the default state of things. And we have the immigration conversation with that in mind. Our immigration conversation devolves to them calling us racist until enough people won't take it anymore and will actually make the communists scale back on the slave trade they're engaged in at the southern border. That's how our immigration conversation goes now. And that's crazy. That conversation only exists because we already accept their conclusion 
as one of the conversation's premises. Immigration is defined as how open our borders should be. You see, if the immigration conversation was properly defined and was being had in good faith, then the point of the conversation would be us determining how many immigrants our country can take in in a given year or over a given period and then having a conversation about which sorts of immigration from which countries and which types of people should be prioritized, right? And even if we want to take out that qualitative part of the discussion and we want to say, oh, well, you know, we can't have the discussion about which countries we should prioritize or which types of workers we should prioritize. We don't want to have a standards based immigration policy, even if we're to do away with that and just say, OK, we're going to randomize that and we're going to take 10,000 immigrants and we're going to randomize which people account for those 10,000. Right. We want to take away the qualitative discussion about who should be allowed in. We still need to have a conversation about how many should be allowed in. All right. And then that conversation has to come down to a qualitative discussion about our priorities when it comes to immigration. If we're going to refuse to have either of those qualitative discussions because the left is going to cow us with their nonsense narrative about racism vis-a-vis immigration, then what we have allowed for already is open borders. Okay? The immigration conversation has to be about how many immigrants our society can take on And then which immigrants we should prioritize or the conversation isn't about immigration. It already assumes at that point that open borders to some extent are a necessary feature. And so what we're left doing is being subject to this rhetorical trick, this extremely effective rhetorical trick. Where they already include the success of their own argument In the definition of what they're arguing about, there is no way that we can actually win the argument by constantly doing everything on the left's terms. Why in the world are we always having these conversations on their terms? We have to use their definitions and their view on what sorts of ways we're allowed to discuss these topics. Or we can't have the conversation at all. And we end up holding ourselves to the rules they want us to play by, even though there's no justification for those rules. And this is why I harp on the whole party of false decorum thing so often. We have to break ourselves outside of that. And that's why I use words that I know are going to trigger people. Because we need to stop being triggered. We don't need to play by the rules of the left. Their conversational rules are set up so that they cannot lose the conversations. The conversation about immigration, if it already includes their view that open borders are somehow desirable and that we must submit to open borders or else we are racist, we've already lost the conversation. 
The immigration conversation is not about racism. We cannot be a nation without borders. Every other nation in the world respects its own borders and takes that conversation seriously. And the less they do that, well, the more harm they are by these sorts of immigration policies, which are nothing if not an attempt to reconstruct society on their own terms. That is what is going on. We don't need to deny that. We need to say our country has borders. Those borders matter. And then how do we proceed from there so that our policies are compassionate and are caring and do recognize America as a place that other people will want to go because of the system? And so we should stop trying to dismantle that system. And it's odd that these people think that to be morally good, they must admit that everyone in the world has as much right to the American experience as they themselves have. That is the premise that they're arguing on. Everyone else has the same right to live in American society as we have because we were born here. We should assume that everyone gets the privilege of being born in America, whether or not they are actually born in America. And the crazy thing is that the same communists who believe that are the ones who are talking constantly about how terrible America is and promoting globalism. Okay. So there's no good in being born in America. If we are in a globalist society, right? If all the countries around the world have the same laws and the same demographic makeup and everything else, if they are all equal in the communist sense, then there's no good in being born in America whatsoever. So what are you saying those people need to take part in? And at that point, the entire communist perspective breaks down and is obviously nothing. It is totally incoherent. But no one's allowed to notice that because if you do, then you'll just see this for what it is. It's not a conversation about open borders. They simply want to change the demographics to fulfill their own political ends, which are obviously all about global communism. Now, last but certainly not least, this morning on War Room, Seth Keschel and Liz Harris came out and announced some findings of canvassing efforts in Maricopa County, Arizona. And this is separate from the audit report. This is really, really interesting the way that they have approached all this. So the last couple of days, Code Monkey Z on Telegram has been teasing something major. Everything will change. And he was referring to this, obviously, the whole time and was promoting this War Room episode and whatever else. He kept saying PSBSR and very cryptic, which I personally find annoying. Like, just say it or don't say it. Like, tell us to watch for the big news. All good. We don't need to, like, spend our time scrambling around for a code and then have people on the internet deciding that it means Patriot stand by stand ready, which means absolutely nothing by the way. And 
also doesn't require code. You could just say it. I just said it. Patriots, stand by, stand ready. What does it mean? Who cares? Right? Why would that have to be kept secret? Why would we only need the initials for that? And apparently he has said it means president, Senate, board, something else I can't remember, and recorder. Like these are the positions in Maricopa County where the elections would have been overturned due to fraud, I guess. Okay? It's irrelevant. It's not going to be something that makes a difference down the line or even today. Okay? He was teasing the canvas. The canvas results were relayed on War Room. And what they show is a massive, massive problem in Arizona. Not just a problem that the commies and normies think about when they hear the term election fraud. Okay? And I'm going to do my best to charitably state what the normie view about election fraud is. And I have some insight into that because like many of you, I used to think that that was probably true. You know, the news would say over and over again, there's virtually no proof anywhere of election fraud, you know, in past elections, obviously I'm not talking at all about 2020. It is obviously all a lie. It has obviously always been a lie. Many of us believe that lie back then, including myself. So I am doing my best to tell you what I thought back then, right? The thought is that so many people in elite institutions and positions of power and people who are purportedly subject matter experts, they all agree on the same conclusion. So the facts underlying that conclusion are to some extent irrelevant, right? We don't need to necessarily know all the facts that underlie that opinion because the opinion is deemed conclusive. And therefore, no matter what we think about the underlying facts, we're not going to actually be able to disprove the conclusion. And we accept that because up until last year or, you know, people have different breaking points. Some people never believed any of this stuff to begin with and good for all of them. I respect the hell out of them for having kept it real the whole time and been right. Good. But the idea is that if enough people have said that there's almost no proof of election fraud, then you can find a number of instances of clear election fraud and still think, well, I guess that this is still relatively small compared to the whole. And on some level, if you don't think about it too much, that makes sense. It's not it doesn't actually make sense. It just makes sense if you don't really think about it. It's enough to turn your brain off, right? The truth is that all those examples of election fraud are the only ones we know about and that if you're going to dismiss election fraud, even though there are plenty of examples of election fraud, then what you're saying is you're okay with a certain amount of cheating. And what we really need to talk about is, is this level of cheating okay, right? And the argument still from Biden supporters and from people who think that this election will not be overturned or should not be overturned is that even if there is some level of cheating, it's not worth all of this, right? It's better to have an illegitimate president in office 
than to question the illegitimate president's legitimacy, because somehow that way leads to danger, a greater danger than accepting illegitimate presidents in the most powerful nation in the world. That is the calculation that they're making. And that is a crazy calculation to make, because if people's votes don't count and if we are going to accept illegitimate presidents as we have been, well, then we don't have a country. And, you know, if people want to argue from that standpoint, fine, but let's be honest about what we're saying. Okay, we are saying that there is no use in even pretending that there is a United States of America and then we can work from there. Let's be honest, commies. That's what you're saying. And so this normie view is that it probably isn't a problem and that if it is a is a problem, it probably isn't that big of a problem. And if it is a big problem, then it probably isn't worth taking care of that problem because it's going to hurt too much. We don't want to go through the birthing pains of a new society. We would rather just abort. But they somehow imagine that our claim is that there was cheating around the edges and that we think it might be enough to give Trump the election rather than Biden. And so we're trying to go after the cheating in these swing states to get Trump back in office. They literally don't understand what the purpose of any of this is. Okay, that is not. Hey, normies and commies out there. That is not what we're claiming. What we are claiming is that there is rigging and cheating ingrained in the election system in this country to the point where the election results are nowhere close to reality. There is cheating on such a massive scale that everyone in this country should understand immediately upon seeing it that your vote does not count at all and likely has never counted. That's how extreme it is. All right. And so I'm going to list some of the findings from this canvas. And this stuff is basically new to me. Obviously, it's new to everybody as of today in terms of these actual numbers. And so I want to address it a little bit today. And I'm sure we're going to come back to it this week and probably next week. And as we go forward, because as Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro have mentioned many, many times, it's the canvas, not the count. Right. And so when Code Monkey was uh, promoting all of this and teasing all of this and saying PSBSR, KFBR 392, if you don't know what that is, look it up. It's hilarious. Um, When he was saying all that, I was like, okay, well, I think that what he's teasing is going to be canvas results rather than what we are expecting, which is the. Uh, results of the paper audit, the full forensic audit in Arizona. We've been anticipating that report being released. But what if this canvas actually shows us something that's even more extreme than what we expect to find in the actual forensic audit? And I think that largely that's what we got this morning. Now, it's been written up in a bunch of places. Wendy Rogers, the uh, state rep in state senator in Arizona, has tweeted about it extensively. She sent out stats from the canvas sent to me by Seth Keschel. Okay. That's captain Seth Keschel. They canvassed two precincts fully and large sections of precincts 
throughout the county, this being Maricopa. They interviewed more than 75% of the towns and cities in America have residents. And what she means by that is the number of people they were actually able to interview represents larger numbers of people than the populations of 75% of the towns and cities in this country. And that's, you know, pretty easy to understand and accept. I think that they interviewed, they ended up interviewing 4,000 people and most cities and towns in the country do not have more than 4,000 residents. That is what she's saying. Okay. The sample falls within 95% scientific accuracy for extrapolations, according to Seth Keschel. All right. They're going to explain that a little bit, but obviously you can dig into this. The uh, report on this canvas has been posted in the info stream t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can find it there and read the entire report for yourself. If you like to understand this better votes lost or stolen, not recorded at County level. They think is approximately 173,104. Okay. Just in Maricopa County. All right. This is a result of the interviews and the canvassing. They did extrapolated out to cover the County with a 95% statistical accuracy, okay, based on their sample size. Because a lot of people are coming out and saying, hey, this is a really small sample size. Well, no, this is actually a pretty significant sample size. This suggests a large swap out, discarding, or over-scrutinization of votes, okay? And by over-scrutinization, she means that when they receive the votes, the votes are being discarded for something that, is triggering them as false or invalid votes. And we're saying that this is being done by the same people who reduced their standard for signature matching down to zero by the day of the election. Okay. And that's so that they could take in all those many fraudulent votes at the end. They didn't have to apply a signature matching standard to those ballots, even though the law said they have to. Similar findings from Matt Brainerd studies in Arizona, right? That is good and interesting. All of the different methods by which various people have looked at the election results, trying to find the extent of the fraud and the varieties of fraud that were employed, those different studies of the election results have yielded similar numbers, okay? Ghost phantom votes, non-existent voters with votes recorded. They found 96,389. That is their estimation. Nearly 100,000 votes from non-existent voters. And this is the sort of thing that you can come up and find in a canvas. I think I may have mentioned this before, but I was at an event that Seth Keschel did a couple of weeks ago. And one of the people in the audience brought up the fact that he and some friends had been doing some pretty extensive analysis of the voting records. And they decided that they were going to go canvas some areas on their own and that they would go ahead and drive past all of the addresses where 10 or more votes had been recorded. And what they found 
was that at many of these addresses, there wasn't even a building, much less an apartment building or anything else that could have accounted for the large number of votes coming from that address. Like they would have, I remember him giving an example of 37 votes, all from the same address. And when they drove to that place, they found an empty lot. That's the sort of story that should scare the hell out of everyone. Okay. No, it's not a very scary variant (laughs) of a disease that kills one in a thousand people, all of them being old with significant comorbidities. It's not that scary. This is the kind of scary where you know your country is being taken from you by the global communists. That kind of scary. 37 votes, all recorded as legal and justifiable and certified in an election, a national election. 37 votes from a vacant lot. That's what we are told we have to accept and shut up about. And that happens over and over and over and over and over again. And that is what is being referred to in Wendy Rogers tweet here. Non-existent voters with votes recorded. Okay. It should be obvious that that vote is not legal. Those 37 votes are not legal. And what they have found from their canvassing in Maricopa County is that they estimate 96,389 votes are just from people that do not exist. Okay. One out of 20 interviewed identified at least one phantom voter registered to their address, right? Their canvas went out, interviewed people one out of every 25% had a phantom voter registered at their address. Number three, voting method does not match official record. They say there's roughly 30,000 of these. For example, they did not vote. The person who was interviewed did not vote, but there was a vote recorded for them. Also, that person voted in person, but was counted as a mail-in vote instead. Now, their vote could not have been mail-in because they were there in person, which will surely have a record, but their vote could have been discarded and replaced with a vote in their name that is for different candidates. And remember, this isn't just about Trump or Biden. This is all the way down, all the way down the ballot. Okay, I can speak to my experience in California. I voted in person. My record in the Secretary of State's website has me recorded as having voted. But when I was at the polling place, I entered my selections on the computer screen. A paper was spit out that says the names of the candidates I voted for. But we don't know what the barcode reads. How are we supposed to know that? I can't eyeball that. And know if the barcode is accurate. But we do know that when my uh, paper ballot that is computer generated is put into the tabulator, it reads the barcode. It doesn't read Donald Trump's name spelled out in letters and then be like, oh, that's a vote for Donald Trump. No, it reads the barcode. And the funny thing is the first machine rejected my ballot. So we had to walk it down to a different tabulator where we finally put it in. Do I know there was nothing nefarious going on there? Absolutely not. 
I assume there was something nefarious going on there. But the reason I tell this story is to say that when I look at the Secretary of State's website, all it has is a vote recorded for me. That's it. I don't know if it recorded my vote correctly, and I don't know if it recorded my in-person vote rather than a mail-in vote. They could have thrown out my in-person ballot and said, oh, I voted by mail and just put in completely different candidates. There's no reason for me to be assured that didn't happen. And what we see here, what Wendy Rogers is describing and what they found in the canvas is that there are people who did vote in person whose votes were recorded as mail-in. Why should they have any faith that their vote was accurately recorded? One person, one vote. They did everything they were supposed to do and their vote was still miscounted on a scale so large that it has to be intentional. That is not human error. Number four, Liz proposes legislative action. Yes, that is obviously one of the aspects that we need in the future. I think Mark Fincham is probably doing the best work on that. Getting these verifiable ballots, having everything be done by hand in person. No more machines, no more no excuse mail-in or absentee voting. If you want to vote, you show up at the polling place. If you are elderly and infirm, exceptions can be made. And obviously, if you're in the military and overseas, exceptions can be made. But otherwise, you go vote in person. That's your civic responsibility. You can't be one of those communists out there watching Rachel Maddow and freaking out about the sanctity of your sacred vote and then also want to vote on your iPad or print out your ballot at home and send it in, okay? Everything they want, everything they're trying to pass tears down the integrity of our elections and the sacredness of that vote. They're just using the sacred ballot as a branding technique to make their terrible ideas sound palatable. They are not palatable. They are terrible ideas. And number five, 173,104 voted, but did not record. So they went around, they interviewed people. They said, did you vote? The people said yes. And the result, like who they voted for, Trump or Biden or whatever else, that wasn't part of the canvas. That's not what they cared about. They just wanted to ensure whether or not people's votes were being counted, right? So this is 173,104 votes should have been recorded because the people voted, but their votes were not recorded. 173,000. That's the estimate. And so you add that to the 96,389 and the 30,000, and they are estimating 299,493 impacted votes. One-seventh of the vote total in Maricopa County. From this canvas and from these uh, statistical estimates with a 95% degree of statistical accuracy, that's what their estimate says and their sample size. The election in Maricopa is off by one seventh, one seventh. That is more than the margin of quote unquote victory for every one of these relevant races. The entire election is a farce and a fraud and should not have been certified. And anyone involved in the certification of an election under those terms should be 
investigated and potentially tried and punished for charges all the way up to treason because they are literally compromising the national security of this country intentionally. The right to vote is one of the most important aspects of our society, and they treated it like garbage. So no, commies, this isn't a little cheating around the edges enough to get rid of the 10,000 vote margin of victory and give Trump the win. That's not what we're in this for. We're in it for the 300,000 votes that are just obvious fraud. And it's probably going to find we're probably going to find out it's actually a lot larger than that as well. And then at that point, we really have to start questioning the census in all these places and the population statistics, which are being rigged, as I mentioned yesterday, to coincide with these uh, election results so that the illusion is maintained. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Please follow the podcast on Instagram and Parler at I'm Your Moderator. Soon I'll be up on Rumble with a video aspect. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, I have a Substack, I'm Your Moderator.substack.com, where you can donate. Or you can donate at anchor.fm by searching Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. I hope to see you soon. Back out on the rain. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash 
I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!